Welcome to Radio Finance, the podcast that helps you understand the transformative developments taking place in the world today. Good afternoon, and welcome to Asian Bankers Spiritual Dialogue on the Seattle Outlook for 2022. Uh, we have a distinguished group of uh, senior risk executives from some of the leading financial uh, institutions and companies. And they represent Asia Pacific, uh, you know, Middle East and, and Europe. And they're gonna share their uh, respective uh, perspectives with us. I'm Alex Rod, uh, Senior Research Analyst at the Asian Banker. And I'm Mubashir Kazmi, Head of Research at the Asian Banker. Uh, so we have a distinguished uh, group of uh, panelists with us today in uh, uh, Kicking off with uh, Anuradna Chada, Senior Executive Vice President and Group Chief Risk Officer at Maastricht Bank. Uh, joining us as well is Albert Patin, former Group CRO at DBS. Uh, and with him is Chris Matten, ex-partner partner PwC Singapore. Uh, and uh, Yasman Mohatan, Director Risk and Finance Solutions, ESG and Climate Risk Lead for APAC and ME at Moody's Analytics. So welcome to all of you uh, at this unique session. Thank you. Very good. So guys, we're just gonna kick off with a light question and I'm gonna read out the question and I'm gonna give you some options. So the question is, is as follows. <clears throat> How do you feel about the outlook for the world? Uh, and the options are the following. A, are you worried? B, concerned? C, positive? Or D, optimistic? Why don't we start with you, Yasman? Uh, it's a bit of a tricky question that, uh, Alex, I mean, we could probably pick all of the choices, but I'm going to go with optimistic. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, where we sit in terms of having risk, being exposed to risk and so on, obviously, this is not going to change every day. We're faced with new challenges. So to be honest, from the world's perspective and the outlook, I'll, I want to pick optimistic. Thank you. Thank you, Esman. Chris, over to you. Um, yeah, I agree with Yasmin. It's a, it's a very mixed uh, picture and you could pick all of them. I, I would kind of put myself more in the concerned camp. Um, you know, there are some positives obviously out there. Um, it seems like at least in certain parts of the world, people are learning to live with COVID and maybe hopefully coming out the other side. Um, COVID's not going to go away, but we might just learn how to live with it like any other endemic problem. But there are a whole bunch of other things out there, whether it's on the economic side, um, you know, obviously inflation is a big concern. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I put myself in the concerned camp. Thank you. Uh, Anuratna, where are you, what do you pick? Uh, my vote would also be with optimistic. Uh, we've come out of a lot, but I think at the end of the day, human creativity and innovation is something that will see us through. We've got to believe in, and that's why I'm optimistic. Thank you. And uh, Albert. How about you? Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm probably in the more worried to concerned camp. Mm -hmm. um, I think there, uh, there isn't much that can go right. Um, I think the pandemic, we just kind of you know, borrowed our way out of this. We don't actually, we haven't resolved it. Uh, combining that with you know, climate risk, inflation, uh, issues around uh, cryptocurrency and, and particularly issues around uh, social issues such as disparities between countries and disparities 
within the countries. Generational disparities, I think, will lead uh, to uh, some growing uh, unrest and potentially populist politics. Okay. I think there is an awful lot that has the potential to go wrong, and some of these things will go wrong. Right. Well, thank you. I get. Uh, I guess uh, we got a lot of good clues before your uh, before the next question, Mabasha. Certainly, indeed. Uh, so that looking at the range of responses that uh, each of you have shared with us. Uh, so I'd like uh, uh, each of you to perhaps take a couple of minutes uh, to think about uh, and to uh, share with us in the audience in terms of what keeps you awake at night as a, as a risk leader. Uh, and I'll kick off uh, with Yasman. Um, what keeps you awake at night? Thanks, Mabasha. The types of risks that we're also de dealing with is actually uh, uh, a lot more different to what it was before. So we need to be aware of, um, account for, quantify, mitigate a whole different uh, array of events, array of risks that we're used to or traditionally have been doing. Um, one example is obviously the pandemic. We just talked about it. Um, no one could have predicted the severity and the impact that a tiny virus would have had, not only on our health uh, and the health of obviously people around the world, but obviously the economies and the whole financial, uh, financial institutions and the whole financial system as a whole, right? So it was, uh, it was really an event that tested the resilience of all organizations. And I want to emphasize all because obviously everyone has been impacted to some extent, um, if not actually quite severely. And uh, I guess here, what I really want to say is uh, uh, that something that keeps me awake at night is perhaps the unknown or the uh, unpreparedness. So not having the tools or capabilities to uh, actually anticipate or deal with such events. And that's basically one of the key things that keeps you awake. Now, obviously, pandemic is just an example, right? But this could be potentially yeah. a different type of event. It could be a climate event. It could be an environmental event that could, again, put us to the test uh, uh, and actually test us and uh, test the resilience and so on. So uh, really, it's all about the approaches, the understanding, the types of impact that different organizations mm -hmm. are really um, uh, need to need to understand and to be honest where we are today I would say we're probably um, to some extent at infancy of understanding of what what else is out there what other kind of risks what other exposures and how we deal with that um, absolutely yeah. certainly a lot to uh, to think about and <laughs> be, be uh, mindful of uh, Chris uh, uh, your thoughts I certainly wouldn't want to be the CRO of a bank that had a large exposure to the Chinese property market, for example, right now. Fair enough. Um, and Albert? I worry about uh, how fragile the supply chain has become. So for years we had this just in time uh, and everything went very smoothly. And you can see that it can get disrupted by a pandemic, but also by you know uh, weather events, climate uh, type of events, uh, as we've seen, uh, or other events like Fukushima had a big impact, flooding in Thailand uh, had a big impact. And if you now look at the world, there are basically only three companies that make chips, right? That's already, uh, that's already a vulnerability, but there's only one company in the world that makes the machines that make chips. So I think our supply chain uh, needs to be and this is what CROs need to worry about. They need to talk to yeah. their clients, saying, "How fragile is your supply chain? Do you have uh, do you have it diversified? Is it robust? Is it local? Is it international?" Um, I think 
digitization cyber risk uh, continues to be high because again it can really bring a bank to its knees right from a financial and or reputational point of view so uh, inflation is not good for anybody right so and you either have high inflation or higher interest rates you can pick your poison but uh, they're not they're not good for growth uh, other than maybe you know for the banks themselves for uh, for a while, but definitely not for our clients. And I worry about, like I said, the growing disparities that there's going to be within countries a lot of uh, angst and unrest, uh, which make these countries, and we see it in Europe, uh, almost ungovernable. I mean, it took my country uh, more than a year to form a government. Right? Thank you. So let us talk about the kind of leadership CROs can exercise. I mean, yeah. we're talking about potential events and events that have occurred in the past. And you know, usually they generate data and you know requires modeling, analytics, and decision-making. Now, we know that uh, banks operate with multiple data sets. Potentially, there are problems with silos. Um, and sometimes banks are you know, working to build uh, you know, data-driven architectures across the entire organization. Uh, now, Anuratna, when it comes to Mashrek Bank, where is the bank on this journey, and how do uh, as, you know how do you as the bank CRO contribute? Sure. Uh, thank you for the question. So I think, like you said, uh, at Mashrek, uh, we embarked on a digitization journey a couple of years ago, and as part of that, uh, strategically organizing data uh, is a is very is mission critical. Uh, now we've chosen to do this, you know, like a lot of other uh, organizations on the cloud in the form of a cloud-based data lake. And we are formulating institutional-wide data governance to make sure that we have the right architecture and governance around this. Uh, as risk management, as CRO, we are a very critical partner in enabling this transition and making sure that we have a single sourcing of risk data and making sure that we have the appropriate set of controls around this. Uh, our uh, preference initially was to go down the centralization route and then equally making sure we are driving improvement in quality through talking about consistent data quality measures. Uh, and it, it initially when we started talking and thinking about it, it seems simplistic and to be expected, but given the time that it took us, it was obvious to us that different stakeholders in the organization saw this differently. Uh, so initially it took us a while to get everyone singing of the same hymn sheet, but we got there. Uh, so th those have been some of our priorities and challenges uh, as we transitioned down the road. Excellent, thank you, Anuratna. Uh, for, for you, Albert, uh, from your perspective, uh, how can the CRO really lead the analysis and be open to these different uh, and new and emerging risks uh, and also accommodate uh, other uh, stakeholders' uh, points of view? So um, actually the question is, how can the CRO lead uh, and be open? I think it's not optional. This is the job. This is what you need to do. Um, and the question is more how to do this, right? Um, so you have to try and be open to all kinds of ideas. I'm a big believer in collective wisdom. A bank is a complex beast. And there are 
you know, many specialized jobs there. And these people have awareness of risks that no single CRO can all know on his own. It just doesn't work like that. Right? So you've got to leverage up your people and you've got to make time for it. You can't just have conversations around the water cooler. You actually have to diarize this and, uh, and, and, and aim for it. Like DBS and I think most other banks as well actually have in their annual report or at least in their internal policies, an agenda item for the board risk committee is called new and emerging risks and that alone forces you to think about uh, what can go wrong because uh, as we uh, as we heard before uh, people tend to worry and rightly so about the things that they don't know right because that can hit you in ways that you never uh, imagined before so you gotta really sort of like set that as an agenda leverage of the collective wisdom and then subsequently start putting in parameters start putting in policies and start managing and measuring these things and the moment that you manager and manage and measure them they will improve right thank you albert uh, and, and yasman uh, looking at uh, you know these different uh, emerging risks what do you believe is an effective strategy in terms of building those uh, modeling capabilities that really enhances the cro's uh, uh, risk responsiveness. Okay, I mean, from a modeling capabilities perspective, first and foremost, I mean, what you need is uh, knowledge and subject matter expertise, right? Um, with the very broad range of risks that we're now having to quantify, it's important to have experts around the table for all of those different areas and having and trying to meet all of these capabilities, sometimes even within the organization alone is, uh, is something that's a bit of a challenge for most organizations, unless you have a very large organization with very uh, well-equipped and uh, large teams that can essentially uh, cover all of these elements. So if I take climate risk, for example, right, this is, uh, I guess, I wouldn't call it an emerging theme because um, obviously we've, we've known about it now for a number of months. Uh, there's quite a lot of activity around it. But mm -hmm. if we take uh, climate risk models um, to develop these type of models, we, we need different types of people. We need economists, we need climate scientists, we need credit modelers to be at the table. So we can mm -hmm. actually assess the financial impact to the portfolios. And to be honest, um, I mean, I just gave some examples, but not all organizations will have these type of capabilities built in. So it's important to kind of think in terms of what are the kind of knowledge and what is the kind of expertise that you need to bring to the table. Now, in addition to obviously having the expertise um, secondary to that, or um, I guess probably just as important as having the data, so good data, access to data. This is something that we hear a lot about today as well. So we heard um, how there's basically different initiatives to actually make access to data a lot easier. And to be honest, in reality, um, for majority of model development activities, um, what we find working with different institutions that data within organizations is sometimes not efficient or not sufficient. Uh, they don't go back far enough or can't be um, accessed in a way to facilitate both the development exercise, because we're talking about the modeling exercise here, or even uh, actually the running of the models themselves. I mean, we can talk about some examples here, but uh, I think the key point in your question was more around responsiveness, and that's, that's probably key, because obviously another aspect here is that model development is an exercise that takes time. Um, I mean, we do, for example, work with banks and organizations that go from model design step all the way to implementation, and these can take in excess of a year. 
And um, I mean, I'm not saying this is true in all cases, but obviously probably it resonates with most people um, around yeah. the table here. Um, I mean, this doesn't necessarily have to be a challenge until the responsiveness comes in and some of these themes and events can happen quickly. So it's important to have the analytics or have the resources in place or be able to source them in time to actually uh, be able to, I guess, address these challenges or address the emerging themes that are coming up or actually generate or be able to utilize the models in time because obviously post-fact after the pandemic has happened, it's too late for us to kind of quantify the impact, right? So uh, these are some of the points that uh, I just wanted to cover. Very good, thank you, Yasmin. Yeah, indeed. So Anuratna, we just heard about uh, that climate risk is, is a new kind of risk in financial institutions. Would you like to elaborate on management of new threats, uh, which are linked to the, you know, to the role of zeros? Sure. Uh, I think if, if we just step back and look at what's happened with business, uh, with the industry strategically, uh, CROs back in the day were, in, uh, were mostly managing financial risks. We then got to a point where non-financial risks became more important. They deserved attention and several of those were referred to by my colleagues at the beginning of this discussion, uh, be it fraud, technology, cyber risk management, operational. Uh, I think more recently what uh, CROs as risk leaders are spending more and more time on is what I refer to as you know, strategic risks. What are the risks arising out of the strategy the business or the organization is pursuing? Uh, climate uh, just been referred to, uh, geopolitics been referred to, uh, the social license to operate. Uh, and I'd submit that if uh, the strategic risks are not identified and managed adequately and appropriately, no matter how well we manage our financial risks or operational risks, we will have challenges uh, for the organization or the business. So as CROs, we've got to be very focused on those. And that really talks to how the evolution also of the role has taken place. Uh, more backward looking, uh, now more forward looking. And uh, who knows, you know, same conversation, this group having taking place one year from now, I'm sure a couple of other potential concerns or risks would have been added to, to the list. So clearly I'm seeing more and more time being spent uh, by the universe of CROs on the strategic risk these days. Very good, thank you. Now we're just gonna move into the next uh, set of questions. Now, perhaps we can hear it from you, Chris, um, regarding the position of CRO with respect to the compliance. If we look at the traditional model um, that many banks had and some banks still do have, if you have a legal and compliance department and a risk department, okay? Um, and the legal and compliance department typically reports to the chief legal officer, who is by nature a lawyer. And lawyers are trained to tell you what you can and cannot do legally, and what are the legal consequences if you do or do not do that. What they are not trained to do is to find out whether you actually did that or not. Okay, 
and most compliance issues have come about. Um, and, and if you think about them, the, the amount of fines that have been levied since the financial crisis, I mean, I don't have the exact number, but it's something in the order of 200 billion, billion. It's a lot of money. Whether this is for mis-selling, breaches of KYC, breaches of anti-money laundering, blah, 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 blah. Essentially, they're all compliance issues. Um, and so I would regard compliance um, as very much part of operational risk. Um, and it is a very material risk uh, for, for financial institutions. Um, and so what we've seen um, over the past, particularly 10 years or so, um, is the compliance function being taken away from legal and put into the risk function. Because the risk function is much better trained at ensuring the necessary controls are in place, the monitoring is in place, and so on and so on, uh, leaving the legal department um, to do what it's, it's, it's best at, which, as I say, is, is simply opining on what you are legally permitted to do or not permitted to do, and what are the consequences if you do or do not do that. So, yes, we have seen this move. Um, there are still a number of banks that have the traditional legal and compliance model, but, but a lot of organizations in the recent years have, have embraced that shift. And I think personally, I think it's the right way to go. Very good. Um, now, Yasman, what are some of the use cases of advanced technology that can uh, improve the bank's compliance capabilities? Um, I mean, actually, there's quite a lot of areas that can be supported by what we call advanced technology and essentially right. automation, right? I mean, at the moment, any technology that can minimize the manual processing, um, manual intervention, minimize operational risk and so on within a bank or within the risk team's uh, activities should, should I, I would, in my opinion, should be considered, should be looked at. Um, banks are not, are no strangers to behavioral models, obviously for credit decisioning, mm -hmm. but obviously also to um, support certain uh, elements, like for example, act as early warning models, identifying risky customers uh, and portfolios before, uh, let's say a credit deterioration activity has happened and really geared towards improving portfolio quality, um, asset quality and so on. Mm. Um, another area that we use AI technology, again, um, again, this could be um, considered as early warning as well, is uh, actually leveraging public data using news articles um, to really gauge uh, the sentiment and in particular credit sentiment of um, for a particular obligo, for a particular name, um, for portfolios and so on. And this is really something that's been proven to predict a default way before a credit event has happened. And this is something that quite a few of our clients are actually leveraging now. Um, beyond that, obviously, other use cases um, using AI technology to support, um, let's say, one of the key processes like the spreading uh, the credit spreads and so on that basically um, a lot of manual intervention, manual processing of financials is, uh, is involved in. And that's something that essentially that uh, we do use technology for. Um, another one is something, an area that uh, we, we've discussed quite a lot, and it's something that's uh, probably um, a key point or a key area that CROs are quite concerned with is around the KYC and AML space, right? And we do within our solutions, so, um, within Orbis, within Great uh, that we're using, we're already integrating AI, uh, machine learning algorithms and so on to both ensure that we support compliance, but also 
helping banks do the assessments more quickly and efficiently. This is, for example, using AIs in name screening as part of the onboarding process, um, mm. where essentially the solution can actually do the screen itself. So this is using customer name, matching to potential articles or persons of interest, matching against sanctions lists, um, and then using really the technology to contextualize it into risk categories and profiles. Now, it doesn't sound impressive because obviously this is something simple that we can do as a person, but if uh, if you're looking or if you're faced with certain, um, let's say, challenges, like for example, a common name like John Smith mm. or uh, based on the region I'm in, Mohammed as a name is obviously something that's uh, quite a common name. There's different mm. ways to spell it. So mm. trying to look up these elements um, and trying to match it within databases, I mean, it's endless possibilities, right? So really, the technology, um, the algorithms that are in place needs to be effective enough to essentially the follow the various thought process steps that a person would follow uh, and apply. And these are just an example of some of the areas that we leverage, but uh, obviously areas of end endless. So there's, there's many um, examples that we can incorporate here. Mm, very good. Thank you. Abashar? Very, very fascinating. Um... So with that in mind, uh, we'd like to ask, uh, perhaps we'll start with Anuratna. Uh, if you can also share um, some of your experiences with this uh, application or implementation of various technology uh, projects, um, you know, and how has the office, the CRO office at Mashrak, for instance, really run, the, run these different technology implementation decisions? Uh, Anuratna. Uh, I think from the perspective of a CRO, uh, what I would really like to call out is the importance of appropriate governance. And I think that cuts through all technology implementations, strategic or tactical. How do we make sure we have the right governance framework to make sure that we are successful and have the right outcomes as part of that specific implementation? And that covers the full gamut of resources, individuals, partnerships with people like vendors, uh, decisions around making versus buying. And when we have things not going on track, uh, how do we do mid-course corrections? So for me, uh, I think appropriate governance uh, is mission critical. And uh, there are examples of when this has been done well, we've had great outcomes. And when this has not gone well, we have had not so good outcomes and conversations has been like pulling teeth. Very good. Um, and, and Albert, uh, you know, drawing on your experience uh, at DBS, um, you know, looking at how you've, uh, you know, taken the initiative in terms of uh, selecting various uh, projects for, for implementation, can you share any learning or insights uh, in terms of, you know, the uh, optimal strategy for, for project selection? Um, so the way to do that, uh, traditionally in DBS, is by setting appropriate KPIs. At the beginning of the year, you set the KPIs for the CEO and everything uh, cascades from that. And in those days, we everybody had IT initiatives on their KPI. If you want to get, you know, if you want to get your bonus, you then better do it, right? I think what uh, what was helpful in making this transformation is essentially three factors we actually spend money on hiring people who could help us transform. Now, bankers, you know, from our age, we are quite set in our ways already. So you don't just change automatically. So you need 
help in, uh, in that journey. So that was uh, critical. Then we also changed our relationship with IT rather than just use them as a sweatshop. We actually partnered with them. We called it two in the box. And both the IT head and the business head should be able to speak on all the topics when it comes to the IT projects. So uh, that forces people to work together rather than just treat them as you know employer employee kind of thing, right? Uh, the other thing that we did in the middle of this, the way that we ran uh, the, the IT projects moved to what is now a bit of a buzzword, essentially agile processes, right? Mm. Now, uh, what does that mean in practice? Uh, we start cutting down the projects in smaller bite sizes, right? Rather than having a three-year project and at the end, uh, you find out whether you run out of budget and uh, time and you still haven't delivered. We have smaller milestones. Uh, we have smaller meetings that you know people just get together for 15 minutes. Not every meeting has to be an hour. Um, we and and uh, and even if you fail, you gotta fail fast. That's fine too, right? Fail, fail next month. Don't fail next year, kind of thing. Um, and uh, and everybody because of these transformation people helped us speak the same language as well. Uh, the results were very good. I mean, when in a relatively short period of time, this change in approach so that my teams, uh, the delivery of their uh, IT was four times as high as the baseline. I understand in the meantime, it's 10 times as high as the baseline. Right? So uh, it really worked. And you got to sort of like, you got to have a mentality, mentality change. IT is, is our business. You got to future proof everything. And you got to think about what you deliver from the point of view of the client, rather than what the bank would like to have. You actually have to look at what we call the client journeys. No client wants to have a mortgage. A client wants mm. to buy a house. So that's got to be the epicenter of what it is you're trying to bring to them. Fascinating. Thank you for that, Albert. Um, we'll move on to the, the next uh, part of our discussion. Over to you, Alex. Uh, Chris, when it comes to, you know, what are the, some of the most significant risks, concerns with third parties? And uh, the follow-up question onto that, you know, from a risk mitigating perspective, um, what do you believe is the most effective strategy to address third party risks? I think you always need to remember that at the end of the day, I mean, it's your business, right? Mm -hmm. So if something goes wrong, you're going to suffer. How, even if it's the third party that, that screws up, it's you that suffers. It's your business that suffers. Oh, and, and by the way, no regulator will ever accept that as an excuse, right? Oh, we didn't, we didn't make a mistake. It was our third party supplier that got it wrong. Mm. No regulator will let you off the hook with that excuse. And particularly when I look at the Monetary Authority of Singapore, very, very, very strict and tight rules and guidelines around outsourcing um, right. about what controls need to be in place. Um, so obviously, you've got to think about very, very hard about what it is you're outsourcing to third parties. Mm -hmm. Is it really something that you need to outsource or something you, keep, you better keep in-house? Secondly, who are those third parties? Have you done proper due diligence on them? Thirdly, um, you know, does that third party have the level of control, backups, whatever, that you would expect them to have, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say they've got weak um, cybersecurity, but they're hosting some of your customer data, your customer data gets stolen, you're in big trouble, okay? Mm. Um, and that there are ways around that. I mean, a, a, a lot of the big um, auditing firms do offer assurance services. There's a standard called ISE 3000, so International Standard on Assurance Engagements, 
um, which enables you to bring in a third party to ensure that, um, sorry, bring in a, a, an assurance firm to ensure that the third party you're outsourcing to has all the, the, the necessary controls and those right. controls actually work. They're not just right. telling you we've got these controls, but you can actually test them and see whether they actually do work properly or not um, before you outsource. Right. Thank you. Um, and perhaps we can also hear this from Elbert. Uh, what was your experience of managing third party risk at DBS? I mean so I think, uh, thanks, Alex. I think that uh, the one thing that springs to my mind when I think about outsourcing risk, and Chris will know this, um, early 2000s, DBS outsourced their uh, whole IT department to uh, IBM. Mm -hmm. And somewhere in 2010, somebody in IBM uh, used a screwdriver incorrectly and our whole retail network went down. Our, our ATMs, our branches, nobody could get money out of the bank. So uh, that probably explains why, as Chris says, the MAS has relatively strict guidelines around uh, outsourcing. And, uh, and we've had smaller incidents as well with, uh, particularly around data privacy that the data of our clients wasn't as well protected with the outsourced vendors as it was with us. And this is kind of a weak link structure, right? Your weakest link is determines uh, how good it is. Right. So, um, so now we have, you know, and, and aided by some regulation to be fair, have uh, a pretty strong upfront uh, policies around this that some of them uh, you can actually find uh, on the internet because we tell our providers what our requirements are. So we have upfront requirements, we have KPIs, there is ongoing uh, monitoring. And, uh, and as Chris said, it's all driven by the fact that whatever risk events they have are my risk events, not anybody else's. So you got to treat it as strongly as if you would do it yourself. Uh, you're you're delegating it you're not abdicating it um now i'm not sure where the direction is going to be because i guess with the increasing requirements around it um, i think there is probably a stronger uh, desire to keep everything in house you want to keep it in your cloud and every time that you buy a piece of software you know you spend an inordinate amount of money on integrating it with your own and then every time they do an upgrade, you have to pay for the upgrade and you have to pay for the reintegration. So I think banks are uh, probably moving more in the direction of insourcing uh, this and, and, and run it like uh, their own IT. So it is just very hard to outsource something, but then still keep the same level of control. Also in your commercial relationship with your vendors, they don't necessarily want every want you to know everything it will still happen but it's a headache i think the 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 preference would probably be to insource very good thank you thank you Albert. now yes man what has proven to be the most appropriate setup for relation uh, for financial uh, institutions relationship with third parties when it comes to climate risk what we are faced with at the moment is actually a very big gap in what is needed within organizations in terms of data, in terms of processes, versus what needs to be there, essentially. So, I mean, if I just break it down, so for example, if we take the data, I mean, the data that is needed to uh, do the quantification, do the risk assessments, um, support the, let's say, more sustainable finance activities that banks are uh, 
uh, gearing towards and actually do the disclosures, those are, I guess, elements that don't exist. So for example, I'm talking about the um, transition risk data, physical risk data, mm. hazard level data to help measure transition and physical risk exposures, um, and actually try to understand concentrations or even, for example, climate scenarios to support the scenario analysis exercises and activities of banks. Mm-hmm. Now, that's from a data perspective, and we know that's, that's a big gap. So going to third parties is obviously, it's, uh, it's inevitable. Mm-hmm. The other gap is actually uh, in the processes themselves. So processes to actually capture this data so that banks can start building on what they currently have to actually expand their databases um, and start collecting this data from their customers or other sources as well. So right. ESG and climate risk data is traditionally are not the type of information that banks request from their clients as part of onboarding. Mm -hmm. Um, So essentially the processes that we have at the moment, the capabilities that exist at the moment are are just not mature enough and not there. We don't have a full understanding of what is the kind of data that needs to be there versus what is being captured as well, typically within organizations. Um, Now, given that these, I guess, practices are not mature enough, um, the actual Uh, let's say, data that the banks need, and this is basically data that needs to be provided by customers, provided Mm. by obligors, may not necessarily exist. So it's not just about being able to collect it, but actually from the other angle, the customers don't necessarily have this type of data. So if you look at a bank's portfolio, we'll have SME uh, customers. For a typical bank, actually, SME portfolio is probably constitute a large proportion of it. And these type of customers may not necessarily know what their carbon emissions or carbon footprint is. And this is uh, essentially represents a very big gap. So what is essentially needed is um, data providers who can provide both the data um, and also, I guess, bring estimation approaches to kind of give the banks a chance, give them a starting point to start their climate risk management journey. So for example, as Moody's, this is something that we support our clients with. We do provide ESG data, carbon emissions data, physical risk data, but also have the analytics to actually build on what is already there. So be able to actually address any data gaps um, uh, that that can basically, uh, that, that is inherently there as well. And this is data that is maintained and updated by us. Uh, and obviously it can be utilized in a number of ways. So if we look at it from, I guess, a climate risk perspective, I think working with third parties, working with uh, external providers, I think it's something that's inevitable. It's going to take us a number of years before banks internally have the capabilities to do all of these elements themselves. It has been a question, what, what is happening with the role of CROs? And one, one main observation is definitely that the, the, the role is ex, you know, ex, getting extended into new risk areas is also moving outside the immediate organization of the bank and the financial institution. And another observation is that the CROs are dealing with much more abstract t- type of risks uh, and um, they're moving away from the risks that can be you know, in, in a very granular way analyze to risks that are maybe related to societal goals and actually goals that are not related to the to the financial institutions shareholders you know requirements and demands but you know what, what the society is demanding and then managing those risks require also new kind of relationships and these relationships can be um, need to be established but they also need to be managed now, I hope you all agree with me. Do you have any final comment in relation to my observations of how the 
role of CROs is changing? No, I think it's sort of like you're, you're right. The, uh, when I started as a CRO in 2008, my day-to-day -day activities were very different from 10 years later. Uh, and I'm sure they will evolve uh, further, uh, which, is, which is the attraction of the job, to be fair, because being a CRO isn't always easier, because whenever there's a problem, it's you, right? right. But uh, the sort of like the saving graces, it's actually a very interesting job, which is not static, uh, where you can use, hopefully, your powers to connect the dots and spot new potential problems. Uh, that has to be the attraction of the job. So you've got to have the right guy or girl for that kind of job. But it will continue to evolve for sure. Uh, so Alex, uh, I'll, I'll just like to uh, make uh, one uh, comment. Uh, over the last 15 years, this is the third time I'm in a CRO role uh, in a different part of the world, uh, each time with a different organization. Uh, I think the, the, the common thing amongst the three roles uh, that I have to employ every day is have a very high degree and tolerance for uncertainty and change. And I think reflecting on a lot of things that were said over the last 45, 50 minutes, I think the whole mindset the CRO has to lead in the risk management and broader organization is that large part of the agenda and issues we are talking about and managing today may evolve and change 12, 18, 24 months down the road. And that's okay. So this mindset change is mission critical. I think the leadership that the CRO can provide is uh, very, very important in that regard. And absolutely hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. And that needs to be embedded in the DNA of the organization, both within risk management and outside. So, you know, these are things that I have seen and had to use in each one of my three CRO stints 15 years apart. Very good. Thank you for that. Um, any more comments? All right. Well, thank you all. Thank you for contributing to today's discussion. I definitely appreciate the fact that we could highlight the, you know, the CRO role and its involvement and whatever it's, it's, uh, it's waiting for. Um, I definitely think this, this role will be much more stronger going forward and hope this, uh, this, this knowledge sharing event uh, can contribute to that. Well, thank you all and um, hope to see you around next time. Okay. Thanks for the opportunity, Alex. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Alex. Thanks, Thanks, Thanks so much, Alex. Thank you for listening to Radio Finance. For more content, visit the Asian Banker website and follow us on social media.